For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Recorded live. Uh, hello and welcome again to Restoring America. It's uh, March the 8th, 2015. And today I would like to uh, kind of finish up what I'm going to be reading from the Grand Design Exposed, uh, which is, uh, it, it covers a lot of history that has been suppressed. And I would encourage you to go back. It, it shows you the the uh, basically the history, the conflict between the Protestants and the Catholic, and the Catholics never did stop uh, trying uh, to take control, to get back in control of England, to try to get back in control, or to try to gain control in America. And this is this is one of the things that really has been suppressed in our in our history, the way our history is taught to us in the public school systems, the mainstream uh, teaches it to us. Uh, because uh, the Catholics have become so influential in Washington, D.C., and this goes all the way back. The point of what I've been reading to you, I just wanted to go back and give you a an alternative view. This is, as we, as we talked about on the show, Lori was on, and... Uh, as we talked about, this is not the only view of uh, early American history, the Revolution, but it is one that you should consider. That is, the influence, uh, I mean, there's two or three ways to look at it, that it was just totally a, you know, a secular kind of a, they were just concerned about freedom and they rebelled against the British taxation problem and the oppression of the British uh, in America, in the American colonies, is one that's kind of the mainstream way that we look at it. And our founding fathers were all uh, just wonderful heroes that were had very pure motives and wonderful heroes. Uh, another way to look at it is that uh, that it was a Christian endeavor uh, from the start. That America was a Christian endeavor. The Puritans, the Pilgrims, the Puritans came to America, Anglicans came to America, Scottish Covenanters came to America, and by the 1750s or so or more, uh, the, the vast majority of people in America were Protestant Christians, dedicated, many of them very dedicated Protestant Christians, certainly not all of them. Not everyone that claims to be a Christian or goes to church is uh, really a dedicated person, but uh, they claim to be, and many of them were very dedicated. The Puritans, the Scotch Coven the Scotch Irish Covenanters, that the Presbyterians that came, and uh, because of the persecution in Scotland and Ireland came to America uh, by the thousands, and they were at the time of the Revolution were uh, one-third of the population in America. So that's one that has also been 
they certainly don't want you to understand the uh, the true influence of Christianity in the founding of America. This is one thing they don't want you to know. And to find uh, to discover some of that, I would encourage you to uh, go back and and read some books by Peter Marshall, The Light and the Glory, uh, From Sea to Shining Sea, I believe is the second one. And uh, he has three volumes that I would encourage you to read that gives you that angle. And I'm sure a lot, a lot of what he says is true. He may not cover the angle that we're talking about in this book, the Catholic angle, which is also there. It's also... Uh, in the mix there that you need to keep and understand. And the Catholic angle has become more and more uh, controlling, I think, over the years, where today the Pope is coming to speak to a joint session of Congress this September, which is the first time in history that's ever happened, you know, which is unbelievable. Whatever happened to the separation of church and state (coughs) that we're always hit with, you know? Well, it doesn't apply to them. That's what how they do. They use they use the principles they want against us, but they don't apply it to themselves. This is how they always work. That's how bullies always work. So, uh, and then there's the other angle of the Freemasons. The Freemasons. If you want to to get a good glimpse of that, go and watch the uh, documentaries by Christian Pinto. Uh, I think one of them, The Hidden Faith of the Founding Fathers is one. Uh, uh, just The Secret History of the Founding of America, something like that. He traces the the influence of Francis Bacon and uh, the Rosicrucians, the Freemasons in America. And you can find information about that angle. What he What is uh, even more... Uh, hidden or more suppressed is the Catholic angle. And the Catholics, the Jesuits work through the Freemasons is the uh, what he's saying in this book that the, the, the Jesuits took over the Freemason uh, organizations. Uh, the, the Jesuits were disbanded theoretically by the Pope in 1773. They start the uh, uh, the Illuminati, what's called the Illuminati, Adam Weishaupt and the Illuminati in Bavaria in 1776. And uh, that fomented uh, communist revolution-style, uh, Marxist-style uh, philosophy from that time on. that uh, produced the French Revolution through the Freemasonic Lodges in France, uh, all of the terrible things of that. And also, what the theory he's presenting in this is that it also produced the American Revolution. And there's, pro- there's truth in this. There's some truth so that <clears throat> you need to understand, at least consider this possibility, that they got a toehold, a foothold in America this way. And were influential in early America. They, uh, they were. And this is what I would like to try to finish up today by reading an account of the, I'm, I'm going to call it the Catholic Founding Fathers, the Carroll family. And you probably have not heard of the Carroll family or it's not been out there in, 
you know, real public if you don't know about the history. In in uh, Montana, we have uh, Carroll College uh, on the most prominent hill up in Helena, Montana, the the capital of Helena, Montana, of Montana, and uh, they are pro- they, This is a Catholic uh, college, and uh, it is uh, named after the Carroll family, the Carrolls, and. What I want you to do is, what I want to do tonight is, uh, or today, is just read some about the Carol, some of this history. Okay, this is from the Grand Design Exposed, page 323. Aristocratic patriots with a Catholic agenda. There was no higher Catholic authority in the American colonies during the time of the American Revolution than the Carroll family. The buck stopped there. They were also the most wealthy and influential, at least most most wealthy, and they were very influential and were naturally, to be as to be expected, patriots to the core. The theory he's presenting here is that the Catholics wanted to get their religious freedom for Catholics in America, which up to be, till the uh, Declaration of Independence, the Catholics did not have religious freedom throughout throughout the colonies of America. That you could not be a uh, hold a public office, and uh, the mass and uh, Jesuits were basically outlawed throughout. They had to what they had to do was uh, uh, do their stuff kind of secretively, because of all the history that uh, had come from Europe and England. That was still a very raw uh, wound. Uh, that they people in America, the Protestants in America, knew uh, very personally. On top of all that, the Carroll family, through the Jesuit connection more than anyone else in the country, had direct communications with the French government and were foremost for being responsible for the alliance of France with the American colonies. The Carroll family were more than just students of the French Jesuits. They became Jesuits. Anthony Carroll of Ireland became a Jesuit, who was also the private and traveling tutor of his cousin Charles Carroll III of Carrollton, while he was a Jesuit student in France. England later became the Jesuit mission station for Anthony Carroll. James Carroll was also from Ireland, who after becoming a Jesuit became a missionary for Maryland in 1749. So this is just 25 years before the revolutionary time, where he remained until his death at Newtown in 1756 at the age of 39. These two Jesuit Carrolls were nephews of a James Carroll in Maryland. And remember, the Maryland colony was Catholic. It was begun as a Catholic uh, uh, beachhead in the early American colonies, who, when he had died, left them an inheritance that set off such an agitation in Maryland in 1750 and many subsequent years. Charles Carroll II was embroiled in a legal controversy as one of their acting executors. John Ashton, the the nephew of Anthony Carroll, was another family member who became a Jesuit missionary for Maryland till his death in 1815. So they're working all during this time. The most famous of all the Maryland Jesuits was John Carroll, who became the founder of the American Catholic hierarchy. 
The picture that must be borne in mind and fully understood is that the Carroll family was much more than just some average close-knit family and even more than some fraternal brotherhood. The Carroll family were descendants of Irish kings, and by being born into this exalted and exclusive circle of nobility, it made them proud, very proud indeed, of their Irish heritage. Aristocracy then married aristocracy as they mingled their blood and fortunes together to perpetuate their exclusiveness, their power. Names like Calvert, Arundel, Carroll, Brent, Neal, Sewell, Brooke, Diggs, and Darnall are, were, most, were mostly all blood-related in some way or another, and all became a part of that exclusive, charmed, aristocratic circle. But what fervently bonded them together was not only that they were Irish and English and American aristocrats, but they were also Roman Catholic. Not just passive Roman Catholics, but Catholics that actively seethed with grievance against Protestant England. What rankled these proud, wealthy, exclusive aristocratic Catholics <clears throat> so that whenever they met, it was forever what they talked about, what they lived and breathed and plotted and schemed and each had such deep sympathy for, was that under British Protestant rule they were denied their civil and religious liberties. They reminisced the, by the bygone days when in both England and Maryland, America, it was their God-given right, natural heritage, that the power of the government was in the hands of the landed aristocracy and they could worship publicly. Forgotten, though, were the butcheries, massacres, and inhuman, inhuman brutal atrocities committed for their Babylonian religion, Roman Catholicism, by the Pope through the Inquisition for 600 years that compelled, that actually literally kill 50 million or more people, that compelled sane-minded people to suppress such barbarous acts. So they, did, they forgot about that. They suppressed that and wrote that out of history. And so, and this is what they've done today. How many today have read Fox's Book of Martyrs? How many today have read of the atrocities of the Inquisition? Not very many of us, because we, that's just been omitted deliberately. And so they hit upon a theme, a theme that stuck, a theme that bonded them together in great sympathy. Every Roman Catholic who despised and detested being restricted in their true religion, according to them, by commoner, poor Protestants, who are nothing more to them than sex and heretic dogs, liberty, liberty in all things, became their theme and rallying cry for the great work, the grand design that would separate the American colonies from the mother country, divide and conquer. So defying British law, Catholic parents sent their children to France to be Jesuit educated. That order of priests vowed to exterminate every Protestant off the face of the earth. This is the Jesuit oath. Then joining themselves together in support of American independence, 15,800 Roman Catholics in Maryland, 7,000 in Pennsylvania, and 1,500 in New York, spurred on by the 19 Jesuits in Maryland and Pennsylvania at the time, along with the Freemasons and ignorant Protestants, all chiming in together, singing the battle cry theme, song, chorus of liberty. Liberty in all things, free from the oppressions and the tyranny of stepmother England. 
What about uh, the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church? That's kind of omitted, isn't it, in all that history of liberty? The three most prominent active men in the Maryland Carroll family supporting American independence were Charles Carroll III of Carrollton and his two cousins, who were brothers, John and Daniel Carroll. It's a pretty good chance you haven't heard of these men. I hadn't heard of these men until about a year and a half or two years ago. Their vigorous, active role that they played in the American Revolution has been kept very low-key historically for obvious reasons, so that the revolution appeared to be a Protestant movement, surely not Catholic. Charles Carroll had been under French Jesuit tutelage for 11 years and away from Maryland for 16, returning home in 1765. He was also educated by uh, in the legal system in the city of London for four years, as uh, I hope you remember that. Daniel Carroll was also French Jesuit educated, and his brother John became a Jesuit priest and after 26 years of education, returned to Maryland in 1774, right, in the heat of the, of the conflict. John Carroll, the Maryland Jesuit priest, coming home two years before America declared its independence, was Rome's man waiting in the wings, like Cardinal William Allen 200 years before him, only this time successful, to triumphantly celebrate Romanism over Protestant England. <clears throat> Charles Carroll, the Flaming Patriot. John Carroll's Jesuit education had prepared him for the work of expanding the triumphal Roman Catholic spiritual affairs in America. But to pro procure that triumph, it was to his cousin, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, that had been Jesuit educated, groomed, and peculiarly fitted to play a part in the American Revolution's political affairs. The broad and thorough educational training that Charles Carroll received, both in France and England, made him the most educated and cultured man in the colonies during the time of the American Revolution. And yet we haven't heard about, about him. In France, he had met many political dignitaries that as soon as the rebellion began would be such valuable assistance, uh, assistance to the American independent cause. One such man was the French Secretary of Foreign Affairs, the Count de Virgin. I'm not sure how to pronounce these French terms. In England, he learned English constitutional history and law and attended frequently the sessions of Parliament and heard many of the debates on questions of American colonial policy. He made the acquaintance and was a guest at the house of Edmund Burke, a fellow Irishman and a British statesman, who so eloquently advocated independence for the American colonies in England. Once back in America, Charles Carroll immediately plunged into politics, being elected to Maryland's conventions and committees, distinguishing himself by aggressively defending the American independence position taken by the colonies. <coughs> Through his comprehensive education, tremendous wealth, and his ability as a debater and scholar, he exerted much power to sway opinions his way. He gained the reputation to be Maryland's first citizen and established himself, as one author described it, as a flaming patriot. Charles Carroll was a member of the Maryland Convention in 1775, 
which adopted the Association of the Free Men of Maryland. The association was pledged to an armed resistance to Great Britain. We have already mentioned the Continental Congress appointment of Charles Carroll and his cousin John Carroll as a committee with with Samuel Chase of Maryland and Benjamin Franklin to visit Canada to secure the alliance of the Canadians in the support for independence. The committee was clothed with almost absolute power over military affairs in that country, in Canada. Upon returning to Maryland after his trip to Canada, Charles Carroll was chagrined to find that the Tory faction had succeeded in having a resolution adopted that declared a reunion with Great Britain on constitutional principles would most effectively secure the rights and liberties and increase the strength and promote the happiness of the whole empire. Further, the resolution prohibited the Maryland delegates to the Continental Congress favoring any movement for independence. Charles Carroll and with others who shared his view set in motion the process to recall the instructions given to the delegates while he was away and reversed them, which in essence was Maryland's Declaration of Independence. This was the work of Charles Carroll. And as a reward, he was immediately elected a delegate from Maryland to the Continental Congress. On the fourth day of 1776, July of 1776, the Congress of the United Colonies, meeting at Philadelphia, adopted the Declaration of Independence. Charles Carroll took his seat in Congress July the 18th, and the day after, the Committee of Congress appointed him to the Board of War. That consisted of five other members. This board was entrusted with the executive duties of the military departments. <coughs> it was empowered to forward dispatches from Congress to the armies in the field and to the colonies, to superintend the raising, equipping, and dis dispatching of the armed forces, and to have charge of all military provisions. It was War Department of the new. It was the War Department of the government. It was not until the 2nd of August, 1776, that the Declaration of Independence was actually signed, and Charles Carroll of Carrollton was among the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. Charles Carroll's vigorous involvement supporting the Revolution kept him an extremely busy man. He was forever on committees and back and forth to Maryland and the Continental Congress, right there close. Uh, there was a new Maryland Constitution to be adopted, a committee of five to devise ways and means to promote the manufacture of saltpeter uh, for uh, uh, gunpowder. Uh, there were constant communications and correspondence to the Commander-in-Chief George Washington, to France, and to Benjamin Franklin, while he was an American envoy to France and numerous letters to others. He was on a committee that gave his support and aid to Robert Morris in organizing the Bank of North America that was to set the government on a sound financial basis, supposedly. Carroll, with other wealthy men, including Washington, sent ready cash to Morris to assure that the bank would be a success. It is known that George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Arthur Lee were strongly, all strongly favored sending Charles Carroll to France to open negotiations for a French alliance. I am the one man that must be kept, kept entirely in the background. It must not be known to a single soul 
that I am personally active in this matter. Charles Carroll is quoted as saying, he did not want to be have this, what he was doing out there in public. This was something quiet uh, and secret. Without Carroll's aid, the alliance could not have been brought about. Charles Carroll was even seriously considered for the presidency after George Washington's first term, if Washington had not have consented to a second term. After the surrender at Yorktown, the French troops camped at Baltimore. Formerly, uh, this was uh, much of it uh, owned by the Carroll family, and uh, that area. Uh, after the surrender at Yorktown, the French troops camped at Baltimore on the very ground now occupied by the Catholic cathedral that John Carroll began to erect before his death and celebrated a solemn mass of thanksgiving. And when the Treaty of Peace was finally signed at Paris in 1783, Congress was sitting temporarily at Annapolis, Maryland. General Washington came there to submit to Congress his resignation as commander-in-chief, but for the celebration to commemorate the peace and final victory, Festivities were held at Carroll's Green on the Carroll Estate. These few examples show us clearly that there was another side to the American Revolution, a shadowy and quiet, but definitely a strong Roman Catholic-influenced Carroll side. And history was, has purposely passed it over like Protestants are in too great a stupor to fathom it. Perhaps as the greatest commendation that could be given for the work of this book is that it might inspire someone else having facilities for a greater research than what this author had to bring to light more valuable information on this vague subject. That is, the Catholic, the Carol, the Catholic influence in the early American Revolution. However, we have looked at Charles Carroll's role during the American Re Revolution, but it is Daniel Carroll's role that is surprising because his is the link that connects it all together. Daniel Carroll, the Catholic Freemason Patriot. After the great work of separating themselves and gaining independence from British rule was accomplished, it was now necessary to form a suitable government for the new nation that would provide its citizens the guarantee of civil and religious liberties, which had been the real purpose of the revolution from the start. At least this is uh, the angle that, uh, that he's presenting. That's, I don't think that's the purpose of all of the, certainly not all of the revolution, but this is one that uh, he is presenting here, that the Catholics did want to get a toehold, a foothold in, in this new government. And I think that's one, one aspect that you should consider and think about. The Confederation of the United States had served its purpose during the war, but all agreed it had numerous shortcomings. This is the Articles of Confederation. This is another black hole that I personally need to go back and study through a lot more than I did. There were presidents of the United States before... George Washington. It was during the time of the, of the Confederation, of the Articles of Confederation. And we need to go back and uh, research and study that. I, that's one area I just haven't had time to, to look at, but it's a dark hole there in our history. And uh, 
the Articles of Confederation would be worthy of our study and our uh, our research. The Confederation of the United States had served its purpose during the war, but all agreed, I'm not sure all agreed, this is uh, the problem of putting universal statements out there, but all agreed it had numerous shortcomings. I mean, if you read... Uh, there was a bitter uh, debate going on about the Constitution at this time between the Federalists who wanted to centralize government and the Anti-Federalists who wanted powerful colonies at the time. And uh, he just brushes over it. He doesn't mention that. And so on the 25th of May, 1787, the Federal Constitutional Convention was held at Independence Hall in Philadelphia to draft a new constitution, which George Washington, with George Washington chosen to serve as its president. It was recorded, this began the meeting of one of the greatest sessions of wise men in the history of the world. Uh, one thing you might not know about is that it was secretive. This was, these uh, sessions of the congressional, of the constitution were secretive. Some of the men left over that. If you want to read a very fascinating uh, book about that, uh, read uh, Conspiracy in Philadelphia by Gary North. You can get a free copy, a Kindle copy, uh, one you can read a PDF copy on his website, GaryNorth.com. And he has done a lot of research about the Constitutional Convention and found... Uh, some uh, glaring things that are very concerning about the Constitutional Convention at the time. And it's that I've read through that book, and it's a very fascinating, interesting uh, history of that. Uh, it was recorded, this began the meeting of one of the greatest sessions of wise men in the history of the world. This is, uh, and, and the Constitution is a great document. It's certainly not divinely inspired, as some people... Uh, want to convey to us. And two men, Thomas Fitzsimmons of, Phil of Pennsylvania and Daniel Carroll of Maryland, were among those wise men representing their Roman Catholic constituencies. I think Lori's on. Lori might want to jump in here. You, you Jump in anytime you want to, Lori. I just noticed that you're on here, too. Do you have anything to say so far on what I've been reading? Uh well, just a comment, Alan. You know, one of the things when I, I hear, I know Walt used to get in this for the carols, and again, I, I don't mean to steer anybody away, but we, we seem to have this, that, you know, that this Revolutionary War started in 1776. Yeah. And, and it had been going on for quite some time before there was a formal declaration. So oh, yeah. who signed it when they signed it's kind of aside the point. The fact is, we were in the 1760s, certainly, and I, I, in fact, I was pulling that up while you were sitting reading. Uh, yeah, in the 1760s, we were having problems. I mean, 1765, the Virginia Resolution, where they refused to reply with a stamp act, declaratory, declaratory acts. I mean, all kinds of things were going on uh, uh, before this in, in an act of rebellion. So we really already were in a revolutionary war per se, we just attribute it to the 1776, like we signed this paper and then, then the first shots were fired and we were off and running, and that's just not the way of it. So, no, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. I think Lexington and Concord, I think, were back in 
74, I think, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Se- 75. And, okay. and one of the things that launched that actually was the preceding year in 74. They, they were known as the Intolerable Acts. I mean, I, I don't want to get off on a side, uh, you know, trail. You know, I mean, the Battle of Bunker Hill was 1775. So, yeah. you, you know. So this, this has been... It's been going on for quite a while before this, and even at the, even at the, uh, what do you call it, the, the con, the uh, convention there, that they had to, that led to the Declaration of Independence. There was a, there were strong debates that uh, many of the colonies uh, were very reluctant to get involved in the revolution. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, there, well, there were there were, there were people, you know, and you mentioned the Tories earlier, and you know, you had the Loyalists. I mean, there were all these different factions, kind of like there is today. Gee, imagine that. There yeah. were ones that that wanted to stay with England. There were ones that wanted to break completely away. There were ones that just kind of wanted to rectify. There were ones that just didn't care, you know. And again, we we keep trying to box people and box box situations in history, but yeah, there, there was all kinds of opinions and stuff. You know, floating and people talking and swaying opinions and just like today, you know. Yeah, this we, I mean, it's easy to look back and 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 I think this book here is uh, guilty of this. He looks back and it's like a he makes universal statements, you know. And yeah, it's that's crazy. It's it's not like that. There are all kinds of of uh, feelings and positions that people had about this. I mean, just. People today look back at the uh, at the uh, Constitution and feel like, well, everybody would just—I mean, it was just universally passed and accepted. No, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. The Constitution wouldn't yeah. even been passed without the Bill of Rights being being added. You know, they, it would not have passed at all. And there was a big controversy about uh, the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers. That was going yeah. on. This was a strong debate in the country, yeah. you know. And yeah. this and, and uh, not- this one book that I read, uh, it's entitled "Conspiracy in Philadelphia." Because what he suggests in that book, and I, I mean, I don't think any one of them is totally one hundred percent the only way to look at it. But his what he said from his research was that. The Constitutional Convention in 1787 and so was, a lot of it was done in secret so that they did not want it, any of it to get out. Some of the delegates left because of that. Some of the leading, de- they just left and walked away because they didn't like what was going on. And it was not being uh, totally open about what they were trying to accomplish and do. And, and then they uh, brought it out and the way the way that it was passed they super they they did an end run around if i understand right they the way that they had set it up the the original what was there under the confederation the congress that was there whatever you call that uh agreed to have a constitutional convention and then they were to come back to uh the the confederation the con- the congress that was there under the confederation for passage but they did an end run around that and took it to 
out to a public vote. And so they broke their agreement with the original Congress that was there. And they did an end run around that. There are several things about how the Constitution was passed that are that are somewhat suspicious about what they were doing in that. That's what he said in that in that book that I read that was it was a very interesting book. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, again, not really other than just a, a general statement that you know, there there's a lot of stuff I mean look you, you you don't just start a country uh, from scratch, let alone if you actually have, you know, bands that you have to dissolve. Uh, th- there are things that, that are done in secret. You know, I, one of the things I, I hope people do not misunderstand me because, number one, I, I'm not an anarchist by any stretch. And, and I do understand the need for secrecy, speed, and dispatch with respect to the executive branch. But that's to be of limited scope, limited time, limited geography, and very, very stringently limited is, is a point. Not this flippant, just, you know, hey, where'd you go to school? Oh, that's a matter of national security, and that's the end of that subject. Nothing to see you move on. Yeah. So, yeah. so it, it doesn't really surprise me, you know, when, when people look back like this and go, oh, well, you know, gee, I mean, you know, it's easy to dig skeletons out of people's closets. Or to say, you know, that well, this was kind of secret, Matt. I mean, you know, I, even it. I mean, you, 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 there has to be a certain amount of discretion. Uh, you, you, you can't. Uh, for example, Alan, and, and I really wasn't going to get off on this, but you, you know, a lot of people talk about putting everything, and I used to back decades ago before I knew much about this, is put everything for a general vote. You know, and and they 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 reason it like this. You know, today's internet and 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 geographic location that it would be easy enough. Well, you know, it it is, but it still's quite rather impractical, in 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 many ways, in many subjects. I'm not saying enough, none of it, but but some of it can't. But there are some things that there are decisions going to things that some people they're just not privy to, and a lot have no interest in. So when when you look back or over that and, and and you dig up these papers, you know all, all I'm saying is yes, there was some hokey stuff, but I think a lot of times, like you mentioned, you know they they make these blanket statements or just that there's um, uh, you know much ado made about nothing. Sometimes there, there's been nothing made about a much ado. I will grant you, but I so I think there's some from both camps. Is all I'm trying to get at, Alan. Yeah, I think that's right. That there's, that, I mean, you have to consider the different sides to get a feeling of what was going on. You've got to consider all uh, as many of the sides as you can to get a feel for what what may have been going on. That's about as close as you can get, you know, to all yeah. of it. So, so uh, thanks for those. Thanks for the thoughts. Let me. I've yep. been. Uh, let me get re- finished with this about Daniel Carroll. Uh, I'm just trying to get through this book here, and this will be hopefully the last one or two I do about it. Uh, Daniel Carroll, the brother of Archbishop uh, John Carroll, was politically in his time one of the most influential men of his native state. Even though his illustrious brother and cousin Charles Carroll somewhat overshadowed his fame. Daniel Carroll had been a member of the Continental Congress of the Maryland Council 
and of the Maryland Senate, which at one time he was its president. As a member of the Continental Congress, he took an active part in the negotiations for the French alliance after the Constitution of the United States had been framed. Daniel Carroll returned to Maryland, where by his efforts the American Constitution was adopted in the state of Maryland. On uh, September the 17th, 1787, the draft constitution was accepted, approved, and signed by 39 of the 40 delegates uh, present. Between the December the 7th and June the 25th of the following year, even though there was much opposition and reluctance because the constitution failed to adopt a Bill of Rights, each of the states individually ratified it. Those who favored the incorporation in the Constitution of a Bill of Rights that would include a provision for religious liberty waited patiently for the opening of the first Congress, which would then present the opportunity of introducing the amendments which they favored. In the work of amendment, the Carols of Maryland were to play an important role. On the 6th of April, 1789, the session of the first Congress had a quorum in both houses to convene. George Washington was the unanimously elected first president of the United States. We've talked about that. He wasn't really, he was the first under the new constitution. That's, yeah, he adds that, so that's correct. Under the new constitution. His inauguration was on the 30th of April, 1789. <clears throat> the oath was administered by Robert Livingston, Grand Master of New York's Grand Lodge. The marshal of the day was another Freemason, General Jacob Morton. Yet another Freemason, General Morgan Lewis, was Washington's escort. The Bible used for the oath was that of St. John's Lodge Number 1 of New York. Washington himself at the time was master of Alexandria Lodge Number 22, Virginia. The new government of the United States of America came officially into existence. Uh, here, here he's trying to he's trying to point out that Freemasonry was in the mix also there very much. Of the 39 men that officially brought the United States government into existence, there is quite an array of them that were Freemasons. Of them, 13 names were definitely known to be Freemasons, and more than that number discreetly have chosen to remain anonymous. But one name, surprisingly, or perhaps not so surprisingly, stands out. In spite of and regardless of the Pope's anathemas and fearful excommunication that sends one to hell for being a Freemason, we find Roman Catholic Jesuit-educated Daniel Carroll's name among those who are the most prominent of Freemasons. How is it possible that Daniel Carroll, who represented the top echelons of the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church in America, whose cousin Charles was the most vocal political spokesman for that church, and his brother John, a Jesuit, who founded the New American Roman Catholic Church, can be a Freemason. The answer to that question solves a deeply hidden mystery. However, it was not until August that the matter of religious liberty was brought up for consideration. <coughs> Charles and Daniel Carroll both were members of the new Congress. Charles Carroll was elected to the Senate and Daniel Carroll to the House. Wherever the contest was to be, whether in the Senate or the House, one of the two Carrolls was sure to be in the arena of action. The end result gave us as the First Amendment to the Constitution, which reads, 
Congress shall make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This was a day of great glory for the Carols and the Roman Catholic Church they represented. For they, uh, the, the, what he's suggesting here is that this secured uh, freedom of religion for Catholics. This is what he's saying was part of the motive anyway. Protestants, I'm sure, would not look at it like that, but uh, he's suggesting Protestants were deceived about uh, some of this. <clears throat> this was a day of great glory for the Carols and the Roman Church uh, they represented. As another phase of the great work was accomplished, it firmly established by federal law liberty for the Church of Rome to function and flourish in North America, in English America. <coughs> That opened wide the door for good things yet to come for them. In a letter written some years later to George Washington Curtis, the son of George Washington's wife Martha, that he adopted, Charles Carroll said, When I signed the Declaration of Independence, I had in view not only our independence from England, but the toleration of all sects professing the Christian religion and communicating to them all full rights. It's interesting to say that uh, he had in mind the Christian, at least he, he mentions the Christian religion, which to him would be uh, Roman Catholicism. Uh, but at least he is, is not Muslim or uh, Druid or whatever, you know. Happily, the wise and salutary measure was taken has taken place for eradicating religious feuds and persecutions and become a useful lesson to all governments. Reflecting as you must to the disabilities, reflecting as you must on the disabilities, I may truly say, on the prescription of the Roman Catholics in Maryland, you will not be surprised that I had much at heart this grand design founded on mutual charity, the basis of our holy religion, the Catholic religion. So uh, from that statement, his, Charles Carroll's goal was to secure religious uh, freedom protection for the Roman Catholics. In 1827, in a letter to a Protestant minister, Charles Carroll wrote, your sentiments on religious liberty co coincide with mine. To obtain religious as well as civil liberty, I entered zealously into the revolution. So that was his uh, his motivation, is what he's saying there. I've uh, that's I'm going to stop right there for now. I've got to uh, take a break here, and uh, I w there's one more section here I wanted to read about this, and that'll be I'll end up this book. So uh, thanks for listening today. Thanks for being on, uh, Lori, and uh, sharing uh, your knowledge and thoughts with us. Thanks very much. And uh, I'll I'll try to be back soon. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. 
No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.